Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and after a string of high-profile scandals over bullying, harassment and corruption in Westminster, with me to discuss what needs to be done to clean up Parliament and rebuild trust in politics, we have Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA Union, which represents senior civil servants, as well as Fleur Anderson, Labour MP and the Shadow Paymaster General, alongside John Gurlis from the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. So I'll probably get into some of the more systemic issues and the knottier subject of lobbying and influence. But the reason I wanted to talk about standards in the first place probably was was to do with Dominic Raab, uh, where we are now in the cases. Been I think around twenty four complaints of more and more stories keep coming out as this investigation into him goes along. You know, Dave, you wrote to the. Prime Minister saying that he needs to get his ethics advisor involved as well, because the current terms of inquiry are that only that Sir Adam Tully will establish the facts surrounding the claims. You know, why do you want Laurie Magnus to join that process? So um, if you look at what would normally happen had the Prime Minister had an ethics advisor at the time he launched the yes. complaint, what would happen is someone essentially would, it's the terminology they use to establish the facts, they would go, they would interview people, they would get the evidence from civil servants, they would put that to Dominic Rabb, and that evidence would sit there. And what then happens is someone has to interpret that evidence, someone has to look at it and say, look, does this satisfy what you would say uh, by a definition of bullying? What definition of bullying are you going to choose? Um, uh, which was a bit of an issue when it came to uh, the Prime Minister's decision previously about the former Home Secretary, and then say, OK, then, is that then a breach of the ministerial code? So just now, there's no one doing that, yeah. essentially. And so as we saw with the Pretty Patel case, the ethics advisor um, had someone establishing the facts, civil servants in this case. He then looked at it and said, this was bullying. I've looked at the evidence. I've heard what she said, but I conclude that she did bully civil servants, including shouting and swearing at them, and that that was a breach of the ministerial code. Now, that goes to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister can ignore it because he is solely in charge of the ministerial code. Which Boris Johnson did. Of course, which he did, right. But he had he had that in front of him and that became public. Yeah. And right now we don't have that because of the timing of the appointment of Laurie Magnuson as the ethics advisor. There is no one playing that role when it comes to this investigation. The KC Adam Tolley is only establishing the facts and then everything else is up to the Prime Minister. And that's supposed to the difference between the investigation into uh, Nadim Zahawi, which was done by Laurie Magnus, which his report was very clear what he thought that, yes. it was, that he'd broken the ministerial code. And in a sense, obviously, Bishop Sunak could have ignored that, but it was really would have been much harder for him to do so given that that was being it, it, published. And it, you want, yeah. Basically, you want the, the Raab investigation to be put on a sort of similar footing. Exactly. That. And that's the point of having an independent person involved in it. That's why you've got an independent ethics advisor. Mm. Although the Prime Minister appoints them and people may say, well, how independent are they? We've actually seen how independent they are in the past. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, because Alexander resigned over the decision uh, of Boris Johnson to ignore his advice. So he advises the Prime Minister because ultimately it's the Prime Minister's decision. But that independent element of that process, I think, is really critical. And that's what's missing when it comes to the Dominic Rabb investigation. And Fleur, what's kind of your view on that? What you, would you make of that kind of uh, idea and what's, what's kind of Labour's view on, on Dominic Raab at the moment? Well, it's been a horrible insight into when, when a t- the, then there can be a toxic culture um, of bullying uh, potentially there and then not 
not only not investigating it very fast, letting it ride on, but also supporting and promoting the very person that these allegations are being held against. And what does that say for everyone else who's working with ministers? What does that say for the best way we can make it, be making our decisions? And this is why it's so important. We should be upholding in Parliament the best standards of public life instead of seeing what we're seeing here. We should be upholding the best standards of investigation into allegations. It's got to be proportionate. There's, there will be times at which people will be wrongly criticised or um, there'll be allegations um, which are wrongly served against MPs. So it's right that there is a good process, but it should be so much faster. Mm. And then it's the impact that it has on decisions that are made for everyone's everyone across the country that I'm really concerned about as well. So instead of restoring public trust, which Rishi Sunak promised to do when he became when he became PM, and surely he took over after all of all that went wrong with Boris Johnson's premiership and and all of that breakdown of trust and integrity, he should have stood there and said, "This is, come on, everyone involved in this administration, we've got to be so much better." And yet again, it's falling apart. And so no wonder we've, we're losing public trust instead of rebuilding it. And yeah, it's very it, as you say, like, by saying it once with this process, he keeps saying it's got to would await for the process to take place. It's kind of created a vacuum in which more and more stories are coming out. There's accusations about Rob's behavior which obviously he denies a lot of it he, and it thinks he's probably going to have to sack him anyway so it's sort of a bit like with Zahawi it's sort of waiting to a point where he's going to have to act at some point anyway and he's sort of you're looking for I suppose for more decisiveness in, in those kind of situations. It's so weak to, to continue this and Zahawi was weak and what's happening now and we, we sit see these ministers sitting there on the front bench week after week and there should be absolutely as you say much more decisiveness because we've got to clear this up we've got to have a new start mm. um, and, and change but I think it's, it's structural we I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this, but I think the very structures um, that Dave was outlining about where, where there are so many gaps and loopholes and ethics advisors that felt they had to resign and then people brought in back to the same system, which is unworkable. Um, I, I think it just needs a whole new approach. And so decisiveness on a whole new approach, this very system of, of our standards within parliamentary life and for all those people who are working on the estate and, and with parliamentarians needs to be changed. Mm. John, obviously you work at the Charter Institute of Public Relations, a bit of a public relations disaster for, for Sunak at the moment. You know, what's what's your view on this? And in terms of, as, as uh, Fleur said, Sunak stood outside Downing Street and said he wanted to bring back that level of accountability. I've spoken to a few people who said that some of the reason these stories come out is almost because he said that. It's sort of, he, it's drawn out people who are willing to say, well, actually, you've not lived up to those things. How would, how do you kind of see that the way that he's been handling this? That's right. He, he had to draw that line, as Fleur's pointed out, from the, the previous or the, the one before the previous uh, administration. Yeah, we about those 49 days in the middle. Yes, that's right. But he, he promised integrity, professionalism and accountability. And I think by you know all accounts, we, you know, we need a fair and proper process, as Dave has pointed out. Um, but we do have a, a very public... Um, display here where, where those accused are being judged in, you know, in, the, in the media, by social media, and we need to make sure that's done in a proper and fair way. At the same time, we need to hold uh, politicians to account um, because of the, the very important role and, and uh, role that they have in our, in our lives. So absolutely, I think it, it plays to a wider issue about standards, um, and it certainly requires, I think, the government, you know, from a public relations point of view, to kind of get on top of the story and perhaps communicate some of the processes a little bit better. Mm. Talking about sort of fresh start we've got a new ethics advisor there's also a new commissioner for standards coming in as well do you think it's a kind of a chance for a bit of a new phase i think some of the 
the cases in the last couple of years, it feels like MPs have sort of undermined the Commissioner for Standards and some of the process. You know, do you want to see perhaps a, a change maybe in the way that the approach is maybe from the Commissioner or from the way that MPs see that process, essentially? So, so I, I think you're always going to have those who are seeking to undermine the person who's kind of policing their conduct. I mean, that's just, that, that's the nature of the beast um, with us. And, and, and that's really where you've seen the kind of criticism of whether it's um, the role of the ethics advisor or in terms of the role in parliament. Um, but you, what you really need to look at is say, well, is the system robust enough? Actually, in Parliament, I think we've got better systems in place. It's more independent. Um, following the kind of scandals around Me Too, a lot of the decisions that were actually sitting with MPs themselves came away from MPs. So there's a lot more independence and staff kind of um, confidence that if you raise a complaint, that will be dealt with without political influence. We've seen some pretty significant decisions. You know, you think about a former Speaker of the House being banned mm. um, from the House. Um, so even when people have left Parliament, they've made some decisions. So I think Parliament's actually in a much better place than the civil service is. Because in the civil service, the, the, you know, Rishi Sunak uh, made those comments walking into Downing Street, but he kept the same remit for his independent advisor, which yeah. he didn't have to do. He could have agreed to the recommendations from the Committee for Standards and Public Life that this has to be a fully independent process. He chose not to do that in appointing a new ethics advisor. He chose to retain political control. And you do that because you want to exert political control. Mm. You, at, one, at some point, want to make a choice that is about politics rather than about the facts of a particular case. So I think some of this stuff is, uh, is what you're inevitably going to get. There's going to be, as they deal with cases, as issues come out, people are going to challenge or accept or, or push at the boundaries. But substantially, what is the process and how robust is the process and the people policing it? And I think in the civil service, it's lagging behind what's happened, not only in Parliament, but in Scotland. Scottish Government, there's a fully independent process following all of the issues around the former First Minister. So if you complain about a minister in Scotland, it's independently investigated, it's independently determined on, but the First Minister retains control under the Ministerial Code of sacking or not as an outcome. But there's a fully independent process, and that's what Sunak really should have done, not in terms of just leadership of government and the country on these issues of standards, but also about sending a clear message that actually it's not about politics that's important, it's about the facts and protecting people from bullying and harassment. Yeah, Dave talks about the process there. You've got a list in front of you, Flo, of all the different kind of, uh, you know, ways that people might get investigated and all the different sort of disparate systems. We had a weird case of me when someone was uh, the independent, the IEP but that meant that they couldn't then be suspended from the house because the, the rules hadn't been implemented in the, the right time frame. It seems like it's a bit of a mess. If we go through all those different, you've got an internal party investigation, there's the ICGS, the IEP, the commissioner, the ministerial advisor, you know, all the police even in some cases. It, it, you know, it feels like that process we're talking about is it needs to be sort of contained in a way that makes sense to everyone who, from the outside in as well, for, for those kind of trust in that process, I suppose. Exactly. It's an alphabetic soup at the moment of different types of regulators, commissioners and advisors. So Labour is saying we would bring all that together on one un umbrella of the Integrity and Ethics Commission. Um, and we would we would announce a process for moving to that as soon as we got into office, because you can have changes of personnel within the current system. But there are so many loopholes, there's so much confusion and a lack of transparency. And instead, there needs to be full transparency. Everyone needs to know who to go to and where and what are their 
powers. Mm. There needs to be full accountability of that system as well. It can't just be that the prime minister has so much control within the whole process, for example. Um, and there has to be a proper um, independence of that uh, process as well. And I think that's the only way we're going to win back trust, but have a system that's really robust, that acts fast enough in the correct way to bring back standards to our public life. But I, I think it goes further than that, that independent commission as well. It, it, we also need to look at the lobbying rules that there are. There's yeah. been a lot of talk about that. We need to look at who's lobbying MPs, where's the money going to? There needs to be far better standards on that. And then it even goes to how we do our contracting. There's a public procurement bill going through committee at the moment, um, and then it will come back to the, the House of Commons and Lords. But at the heart of that were issues like the VIP lane for the PPE contracts. But there are many other more examples about public procurement and the, the, the use that ministers can make overly political in that. And then there's, there's voting and how we can vote and who can vote. And all of this is part of winning back trust um, and bringing integrity back to our system. Mm. We'll bring you in on, on, on the lobbying stuff in a, in, a, in a second, John. Just going back to David, we talked about before the start of the podcast about the, the Speaker's Commission. Sir Lindsay Hoyle's trying to sort of move this process on. It kind of all... A lot of it picked up after the sort of the Me Too scandal and sort of the Pestman stuff a few years ago, but it's kind of stalled really. And I think one of the things I, I look at is when you see how long any of these investigations take, you know, from the point of a complaint going through, it takes at least a year often for, for a conclusion. Do you think Sir Lindsay Hall's committed to trying to, to improve the kind of the, the way that it is from the outside, but also internally to get things through the motions quicker, really? Yeah, I mean, sometimes that can be legitimate. Sometimes it's not. So, I mean, if you look at the the, the Dominic Rab case, you know, there's there's eight separate complaints over four years from three different departments involving, we think, more than a couple of dozen civil servants. You know, if people have got to be interviewed and agree notes, and then evidence has got to be put to people, and you're interviewing witnesses as well, these things can just take time. Mm. Um, and some sometimes that's a question of resources. You know, like any system, it's about the resources that are put into it. Sometimes it's just inevitable. And also you have a situation quite often where you have some of the protagonists not really incentivized to do things quickly so they want to drag it out as well so any process has to have the power to compel people has to be able to make decisions quickly so i think sometimes these things just take time that's what happens yeah. and then and sometimes then, you know, the right to an yeah. appeal and that sort of stuff and people need yeah, to, sort of to see that justice is working in the correct and, and correct i think manner. you've also you, you know we're seeing this just now with the, with the dormant rab investigation understandably there's huge public interest in this but there's a confidential process that also has to take place so you want to make sure that that's got the best opportunity to operate without influence uh, from elsewhere and that for example, we, a number of the cases in Parliament, all of that appeals process concluded as well because there are huge consequences for individuals if they are found guilty. Um, and so their ability in, uh, uh, to challenge is important as well so that when it becomes public, it's at the end of a process and that people feel that it's got nowhere else to go and that is a decision. So there's a lot to, 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 to deal with in there. And it's difficult because if it's an employee, and this is one of the challenges with both parliament and government with ministers, if it was a civil servant who was being investigated, their employer can compel them to do things. 
to, to cooperate, to respond in time, whatever. That's not the case when it comes to uh, both MPs and ministers. Yeah, they have so, this odd, strange employment yeah, sort of process, you know, don't they? They're, they're so, not- so therefore you end up with different rules and different ability to, to force. I mean, even if someone was a, a member of parliament, they can ignore their party on some of these things, you know, these are about individual conduct kind of stuff. So exerting influence and getting them to do stuff when they're, they're not minded to can be quite difficult at times. It's, you know, if a prime minister wanted to do, could kind of force the pace with a minister. But ultimately, I think they, they just sometimes it's just the kind of length of time it takes. Mm. But I think Lindsay Hall's commission is looking at a number of things in terms of the processes. There's some of the issues that are about protection. What happens when someone's accused? of something and that raises a concern um, as you would in an employment context should someone be excluded from, from Parliament yeah. how do you do that when actually only Parliament can exclude people so how do you deal with and those the people kind of the, the constituents need a representative in, in Parliment that's why they were there yeah. and, that's and there's lots of kind of conflicting issues around it and then we're saying well actually we've got employees in Parliament who potentially could have to work closely with people who could be accused of quite serious yeah. um, issues or, or, or potential crimes and in any other employment context that person would be removed from the workplace so it's not simple as well as well as you know you can come to a conclusion on this and then in Parliament you've got to persuade Parliament to do it because only Parliament essentially can police itself. It can decide to delegate some of those powers and all that kind of stuff. But some of this stuff, you have to make sure that you've got a consensus across Parliament with as well. And, and again, some of those reforms have just taken time just to get that sort of consensus. Yeah, John, some of the cases that we've seen have not, in recent years have not just been sort of bullying or harassment. They've often also been about lobbying, Owen Patterson being the kind of the, the, the most high profile one of those. You know, a lot of it comes down to things like the transparency of lobbying, non-party campaigning and Trade Union Administration Act 2014. The lobbying, we call it the lobbying act. Yes. The lobbying act is, is <laughs> easier for shorthand. What are the kind of the limitations of that, and what do you at the the CIPR want to see kind of improved around that? Yes. Well, how long have we got? Uh, <laughs> I mean, l- lobbying is a very big piece of the jigsaw, yeah. um, along with a lot of the other points that we've been discussing already, uh, which is which cover the issue of standards or, or perhaps lack of them in in, uh, in Parliament. The lobbying act was introduced in 2014 by David Cameron, uh, with the sole intention of improving public trust and confidence in our politics. And I think by any measure, you look at, look at any polling that's done, and certainly front pages over the last couple of years suggest that that has completely and utterly failed. The legislation's, in our view, not fit for purpose, uh, and we believe is actually detrimental to, to improving trust because of the limitations. And uh, the, the most significant one of those, really, um, is the fact that the legislation established the register of consultant lobbyists, yeah. uh, and the clues in the sort of the title of the C it only needs to capture third-party consultant lobbyists. So anyone working in-house, paid for by an employer, which is what David Cameron did. Uh, with Greensill, he was not required mm. uh, at all to register. It was completely legal and above board. Uh, and it's our position that that actually is just not fit for purpose. It doesn't actually just uh, give us any transparency. Some estimates put it at around 4% of lobbying activity that's captured by the right. register. I was going to say there's, there's only there's a few hundred people on the register. Just over 200. Just over 200. And yeah, I think in the last couple of years, ministers have registered several thousand meetings with lobbyists. So, so clearly there's a, there's a, few, there's a bit, bit of the way to go there. And if you look at other countries, for example, I mean, we are lacking behind the likes of Romania, Slovenia, Peru, Mexico, the Netherlands. You know, the EU has, you know, something like 12,500 registers, Canada 7,500, US around 20,000. And as we said, the UK, the Westminster Register has around 200. So, you know, when you ask about the limitations, 
limitations, one very simple, quick thing that we can do is quite simply open the register up to include all lobbying activity. And that's what we want to see, a register of lobbying activity that looks at the impact of lobbying, not just a register of who uh, or particularly who is doing some lobbying. There are some other limitations too, but... Um, we can obviously get into those. Uh, and as <laughs> yeah, I said, so, I could be here all day. So the reason is, in that sense is not essentially to stop people from meeting, it's to stop lobbying, because lobbying is always going to exist. But I guess it's the, the transparency of it, and so we understand who is doing it. And, no, and we, we, want, we want more lobbying. Right, uh, okay. lo- lobbying is a force for good. Right. Uh, and we believe that parliamentarians should hear from as many voices as possible. Yeah. And ideally, we want uh, the public to, to know that that happens, to be confident that their parliamentarians are making decisions based on getting information uh, across the board on different policy matters. That's a good thing. It's a good thing from our democracy what uh, what isn't good is when you show a certain amount of lobbying that happens but not the vast majority of what goes on and that's where you lead to certain problems um, by the way I should point out that the lobbying industry is taking its you know responsibilities for transparency very seriously particularly since the lobbying act came in the front page stories we've seen particularly in the last couple of years whether it's Patterson whether it's Cameron uh, usually comes from people that are in or have recently left Parliament, yeah. uh, and that tends to be an issue. So uh, there's a concern there, but the lobbying industry wants to wants to take itself seriously in terms of the uh, transparency that is required from it. Uh, has done, and actually our members are telling us, do you know what, we want to be more transparent um, because it ultimately benefits parliamentarians because they can demonstrate that they're meeting with a wide number of voices on particular issues. It demonstrates the lobbyists themselves because they're telling their members, their uh, members of staff, their employees, their stakeholders that they are having these meetings, uh, and it ultimately benefits the public because they are seeing a, a true picture of the kind of uh, you know, policy discussions that are happening to try and influence uh, our legislation. Yeah, Flo, I saw you nodding along there. Flo, Labour has long opposed the Lobbying Act, and I think in, in 2019 under, under Jeremy Corbyn, which is before you entered Parliament, I know, but the, the party announced it would repeal the Act if it won a general election. I'm not asking you to write the manifesto here on the podcast, although you can, if you want to, go for it. Uh, but, you know, uh, would, you know, is that Labour still positioned? Is that what you'd want to see a change the way that Lobbying Act works? Yeah, so I am a newly elected MP, 2019. So before that, I used to work in charities and I saw this side of lobbying. And I'm glad John's talking about lobbying is a good thing. Yeah. It's, it's, not a, it's not a dirty word. It's not a bad thing. It's good for, for interest groups to come with expert knowledge. Um, and I appreciate that even more now I'm an MP of hearing those different voices. So I know the chilling effect that the lobbying, effect, lobbying act had on charities, for example. They do not have the resources to investigate um, the likelihood of them being caught um, and and. Mind maybe for doing the wrong kind of lobbying and so therefore they just pulled themselves out they counted themselves out of a lot of going to their MPs and saying look in my area we need um, disability access for something we don't know if we now can lobby for that ask for that change that we know that people need in a local area because we're also asking for maybe a council contract and then that might stop us it is literally things like that that are stopping it so that's one side of it and then the other side is this financial um um influence on ministers of of lobbying and that's what we need more open transparency for so as an mp i have to declare my interests. i have to declare them within a month as a minister they don't have to declare them at, at all as far as i can tell if you look up the no, we're latest st- we're still waiting the we're still waiting for those. may last yeah. year was the last time that ministers declared who they were meeting it's been quite a few ministers since then so maybe it's, maybe hopelessly, it's hopelessly out of date if you look it up which i did um it, it yeah there's several ministers ago i can't even remember those people being ministers it yeah. seems so long ago so they don't have to register within the same amount of time that MP they're not held to the same standards as even other MPs 
but they should be held to even higher standards. So we should know who they're meeting, what money's passing forward, and then this personal, then the third part would be, for me, the are they um, they're getting benefits financially, personally from this? And so that's about second jobs. So we would ban all second jobs, except some limited exceptions, like um, doctors who are working in A&E or something like that, but really just ban second People, jobs. Like just uh, professional qualifications, they need to do some work Something to like that, going, something, so. yeah, some very limited amounts, but basically ban second jobs. And ban this revolving door between you can have one eye when you're a minister on, oh, I'm going to be stepping down and who will I be employed by next mm. which to be honest I hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me as a very <laughs> naive MP coming in just to do my best for public service to realize that actually they're looking ahead and thinking who can I therefore work with so that when I leave I can get the most lucrative job possible We're, we would stop that we would ban this revolving door we would say you cannot work for regulators and others within five years of office yeah. um, and that that's the only way we can really really trust a system mm. Well, we'll come on to a cobra in a second, which is the the body. I was going to say, as a journalist, you're, you're duty bound whenever you write the word a cobra to write toothless in the same sentence. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the last couple of years. But but uh, before we come on to that, uh, the the Green Seal affair, uh, Dave. You know, there was the Nigel Boardman review into that, and 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 the links between people within government and including some senior civil servants and and. David Cameron and, and Greensill himself. What did you kind of make of, of that? And what do you think has got to be done, not just to improve the way that those functions work, but also the way that they're seen? It's sort of seen as oh, people feathering their nests, people you know, uh, doing deals behind closed doors for people they've worked for. It, I think that was one of the ones, certainly during the pandemic, that did a real damage to the trust in the way that these things work. Yeah, it has. And, and, and it's tough because if you're in government, um, that point about lobbying is good. Actually understanding what's going on outside, particularly in industry, right, and being able to make informed choices and having people coming into government and then, you know, working at the heart of government from industry as well as um, uh, uh, just listening to kind of interests is critical. And you have to do that in a way that also means that you can deal with any potential conflicts of interest. You know, you want to come and work in government, you're going to take a very big pay cut. You know, um, that's the reality of it. Um, and you might do that. You might choose to do that. And lots of people do because it's doing good work and it's interesting and it's fascinating. And you, you may then go out later on and, and, and um, uh, earn a, a higher salary. But um, the reality of it is there is, you know, you're unlikely to stay if you come from outside of government. So, so I think if you want to attract those people into the centre of government to work in government, not just tell us what's going on, actually work there, you need to be clear about what the consequences of that are for them and what are the, the challenges around them moving out then into um, back into the private sector. What decisions have they made? What um, oversight is them uh, around that? And what restrictions are them on them when, when they go outside? Um, and so that people can understand that. And I think that's where you get into difficulty. It's not to say that people can't come from outside or can't go back yeah. to outside. It's just around how fluid is that and where is there potential conflicts of interest and, and being clear with people and for the public, as we talked about with, with MPs elsewhere, understanding those issues and I think Greensill really put a spotlight on that because it was very fluid there were there was very much a kind of he's a good person and from Prime Minister down there was overlap it seemed yeah. between people where people worked and didn't work and that, and that sort yeah, of stuff yeah so it kind of just felt like you know, we're kind of it's really good to have this person at the heart of government and we, all of those things we kind of um, were just a bit less concerned about so so it's had a bit of a chilling effect but it's a big challenge for government because you know every minister comes in and says we want people from the private sector in the heart of government 
government, well, that's fine, but, you know, if there's a 50% pay gap, what is that actually going to mean? And we've seen that at times with some um, people. When John Manzoni came in as the chief executive of the civil service, the whole question about, because if you work and you're a senior person working in somewhere like BP, where, where he was, then he's got a shareholding. Well, what does that mean when yeah, you come yeah. in? Do you have to divest yourself for that? And quite often, they're really only bringing people in for a few years. And if you want those people in, you've got to say, well, actually, you know, are we going to have a kind of 10-year impact on your salary as a result yeah. of it, not just the three years you're in? Well, yeah. So these, these aren't simple uh, uh, issues to deal with. Um, but we've got to get better at it because, you know, one, there's the public trust and that issue about public trust. And secondly, government does need people coming in from outside. It needs to grow its own and pay better, but it's always going to need expertise from elsewhere um, to come in and work at the heart of government and be able to do that. On improving that, John, COBRA, which is the, the Committee on Business Appointments, is run by uh, Lord Pickles, the former Cabinet Minister himself. You know, What kind of improvements do you want to see there? Is it a lengthening the gap between that? Because at the moment, I, I joked about being sort of toothless, but you can only really sort of send a letter saying you shouldn't really take up this appointment because there's a fear of conflict of interest. But it's in a sense, it's difficult to stop people, maybe not ministers, but stop people who've worked in the heart of government who came from business to then go back to their previous uh, you know, appointments when they might lose that job for no fault of their own if government changes, et cetera, et cetera. So how would you like to see a COBA sort of fixed up, really? Yeah, I mean, a COBA, a COBA seems to have the sort of power of embarrassment in their back pocket, and that's that's sort of about it, which, yeah. which can be a powerful tool. But, but as you said yourself, uh, occasionally comes across as, as toothless. I mean, there's been now, I mean, Greensill, or since Greensill, we've had several inquiries and committees talking about you know, Fleur's alphabet soup of who kind of governs these things. There's been at least seven, um, you know, inquiries uh, and committees also looking at uh, the issues of, of access, about the revolving door, about procurement uh, and about lobbying. And, you know, the Cabinet Office, what, you know, Boardman, which was obviously commissioned by the Prime Minister at the time, um, you know, the reports are now sitting in the cabinet office in tray um, with a whole host of recommendations, uh, whether it's around a COBA or the lobbying legislation or access or procurement and all the things that we've just been talking about. There's at least seven that I counted, possibly more now. Um, you know, there are a lot of recommendations now sitting there. Mm. Um, from our experience, and part of the reason why we launched the campaign uh, at the end of last year was because it's just been radio silence. Yeah. Um, it's not a very sexy topic, I suppose, if you're a government, you know, in... in, in trouble to say, right, we're going to reform this element of it. But it's quite important, I suppose, to the machinery of government and, and also how it's seen from the outside. It's incredibly important. It matters to, to, to the public. Um, I mean, you could argue that it was a combination of, uh, you know, Partygate and the Owen Patterson affair that ultimately brought down Boris Johnson. Um, Two of the three P's along with the picture. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then, you know, you, you know, you look at actually, you know, public polling in terms of, you know, questions of standards yes it matters to people but also more importantly you know internationally and from our own reputational point of view you know as we're looking on embarking on a new international era of, of you know trade deals and the like um, and we're also of course coming down strong on other other international um, uh, uh, countries looking at the likes of Russia China or whoever it might be um, you know how are we able to say that we expect certain behaviours and standards from them if we're not displaying it ourselves? So, you know, it does matter. Yes, it doesn't necessarily cover the day-to-day -day, uh, issues of some of the, the sort of more immediate things like the cost of living crisis. But from a parliamentarian's point of view, they need to take this stuff seriously because you're only one Sunday Times, you know, front page away from the next scandal. Um, <laughs> the press has got, you know, a taste of this. You're doing a podcast on this. The stories are not going to go away anytime soon. There has to be, as to our, you know, first conversation about the issue, 
issue of governance. There needs to be, you know, some some real sort of you know culture changes and close you know uh, examinations into how the, the governance processes work. Um, but we've got to get on top of this quite quickly because ultimately it's going to continue to erode trust. Uh, and when that happens, what you see is either you know one of two things: disengagement, which the voter turnout's low, uh, or people moving to populist you know parties, for example. So. You know, parliamentarians might not find it as, as sexy, to use your words, mm-hmm. as some of the other uh, issues that are facing them at the moment. But it's certainly one that they, I think, need to start taking quite seriously. Yeah, talking about trust, I think Britain achieved its lowest ever score in a the Corruption Watch List, Transparency International's Global Corruption Perception Index. Uh, and also just looking up the Veracity Index for all professions in the UK. Um, Journalists are quite low down, unsurprisingly. Uh, we're <laughs> d- 29%, just above estate agents. Um, but down <laughs> at the very them. bottom is politicians generally, only 12% oh, trust. You know, mm-hmm. if, if the government at the moment can uh, find time to turn four departments into three or three into four, you know, can, do you think they should be able to find the time to make these sorts of reforms, do you think, as well? No, nothing makes my heart sink as much as standing on a doorstep, which I do, I do a lot of, standing on a doorstep and someone just says to me, you're all the same. You're, right. And I just, <laughs> I feel like we're not all the same. Yeah. And I'm putting my heart and soul into being a good representative and, and making sure that our public life is, is, is as good as all of the British public deserve. And yet we do get all tarred with the same brush by mm. any of these different scandals. And so this murky, ta- the murky tax, what looks like avoidance of Nadim Zahawi, everyone's thinking, well, I pay my taxes. I, I do things correctly. And I'm asked to do that by the government and I do it. And it's one rule for them yeah. and another for us. And that's a really, really powerful feeling at the moment in the country. Um, and it's absolutely right that we're losing our international credibility. Many other things have helped that along the way in the last few years, but this, we have had, we've been a, a, the, the force for good of, um, of being fairness. It's is been the British watchword around the world and, and we're losing that. But also this rise of populism, it's absolutely right. I've been around to several other countries where we can see that across Europe this is happening. And nothing plays into that more than saying, look at them. They're, they all act totally different to you and they're all in it for themselves. Yeah. Um, and when, when you're being asked to... So it's the government's job really to try and fix this and to stop that rise to say, look, look we're not all the same. There is, a, there is, a, there is an element of, of accountability that, that can be had and therefore you deserve to trust the actual government and not kind of be the siren calls of, of kind of outside voices and other, other parties and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and so tinkering around the edges of this system is just not going to work anymore. It's not going to cut it. We're, we're at a stage where we have to see a fundamental change, mm-hmm. something that people can see makes a difference as well, because it's going to be confusing. No one's going to really want to get into the, the depth of this, but what they want to see is that we don't have any more of these um, scandals and, and constant undermining of the government. So in a way, we're not going to... If it works, we won't see the results of that. We won't see the things that didn't happen yeah. by their very nature... But we will see an increase in trust and confidence for politicians. And that it's local councillors as well. It just goes all through. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked talk a lot about conservatives, <clears throat> and there have been quite a lot of conservative scandals. There's a couple of ones outstanding, the Christopher Pincher one, that David Warburton. But, you know, Labour has not been immune to it either. It was recording on Thursday, Jared O'Mara, the former Labour MP, is being sentenced for uh, expenses fraud. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of MPs, Mike Hill, Chris Matheson, have left Parliament under investigation. There's Claudia Webber's convicted. There's, I think there's I think Neil Coyle, Nick Brown, Conor McGinn, Rupert Huck, and Christina 
Teresa all currently suspended. All for very different reasons, all I might say. Different very different reasons, different reasons. But you know, you're right. But we've we've got to be absolutely prepared to take that and to be have the highest standards, but also to take that. It's going to be uncomfortable for us. Yeah. I can't say we're going to be perfect. Not at all. We have to take that and, and accept that any system means more scrutiny for us as well. And that's what cha- not changing the system makes it look like they don't want to see more scrutiny. Yeah. We would change the system, realising absolutely fully this means more scrutiny on us. Yeah, David, you are nodding in agreement there. Do you think that you know overall have things got worse? I mean, every generation has an issue. There's sort of sleaze and cash for questions in the 90s, expenses in 2010s and the sort of stuff now. Do you think that it's more that we're sort of more unwilling to accept this? Or do you think that, that there is an issue, particularly with this sort of generation of politicians? Or do you think that actually things are changing for the better in terms of we're exposing more of these kind of problems? Um, I don't think there's one answer to that. I, I mean, five years ago, if you'd asked anyone... Um, who the independent advisor on ministers' interests or what the independent advisor on ministers' interests was, no one would have been able to answer, right? Well, people, so, in, this, people in this building might do, yeah. but yeah. But the, but um, yeah. So, so clearly things have happened yeah. around um, uh, the conduct of individuals and the scrutiny of that. I mean, I know, so, so one of the issues, you know, close to our heart is about the conduct of ministers when it comes to civil servants. Um, and... I know, uh, having dealt with some of the cases that have come to the fore in the last few years, that, you know, you scratch the surface and you talk to civil servants and it was ever thus. And uh, there were occasions and ministers of all uh, government departments, uh, all, all colours, and I, I mean that, uh, and all nations, um, where there were issues about their conduct. Um, so I think there's an element of which some of this is... Uh, uh, whether it's because of scandals and therefore post-scandal um, people feel more confident about challenging or systems change. Um, I think we're seeing more scrutiny on some of these issues um, uh, around it. But also I think there's been a real... I mean, the last three years has been extraordinary in terms of the failure of leadership of Boris Johnson on this point. You know, that's not a party political point. It's about there was an ethical vacuum at the heart of government and so much of the system relies on you get to that point where the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister does the right thing, um, the kind of good chap principles as they talk about, and that just didn't work, and the system fell apart as a result of that. And that had, I think, a really corrosive effect. The Committee for Standards and Public Life have just done a report about this, and they were talking about the role of leadership. And when it comes to public life, there is no greater public leader on standards than the Prime Minister. He sets that tone both for government, but across public services, whether it's local parish councillors or or MPs or ministers. If you look at the Prime Minister and think, well, these things don't matter um, uh, uh, to, to him or her, why does it matter elsewhere? Um, and I think that really has been, over the last three years, a, a, a real challenge, which is why I think it is so disappointing that Rishi Sunak stood in part, uh, and the steps of down seat talked about these issues, clearly politically wanted to put some clear blue water between him and uh, one of his predecessors, his recent predecessors. Um, but were then when faced with a difficult decision, right, what are you going to do about the ethics advisor? Are you going to make it independent? Are you going to retain political control? Has then moved backwards. Well, he only ended up with Adam Tolley investigating uh, Rob because he hadn't yet got Sir Laurie Magnus in place, despite having said in the first leadership contest he was going to do that yeah. straight away. So, so um, and he's kept the same remit, you know, he just, he's kept, so there is no independent ability to investigate for the ethics advisor. The Prime Minister has to, uh, essentially has the power of veto where there's even investigation into a minister, as well as then, they as the only person that can make a decision on it. So there are things that Prime Ministers can do. Uh, I mean, I think people will probably look at Rishi Sunak and say he is a different character from Boris Johnson, 
let's hope you know when he gets to make some further decisions, he makes the right one in a way that you you, you wouldn't have had any confidence with Johnson. But it is about the difficult decisions for prime ministers, and as we see, it, it makes bad politics as well. You know, Johnson was brought down by this yeah. stuff. You know, there were a whole series of scandals, including Prick Patel and the decision to take around that, because it was so brazen, people could see what he was doing. And that, you know, there was a real corrosive effect around it. So even just in terms of political nous, prime ministers should understand it's really important to do that, as well as you want to do the right thing, eventually this stuff will catch you up. Yeah. John, just to finish then, you know, as, as Fleur said, you know, it's not everyone within politics. It's not everyone within parliament. Even the number of cases that we talked about today is still represent a small fraction of, M- of MPs and a small fraction of people who lobby and say lobby, lobby for good. You know, do you think that is it that trust can be, is it leadership? Do you think that, that it comes down to, 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 to repair that kind of trust? Do you think, and, and what is the kind of the number one thing that, you know, Rishi Sunak and government could do to repair that, you think? It, leadership will play a big part, but I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to say that actually we need to take the personalities out of this conversation. Yeah. It needs to be about the rules. And what we've got now, as I've said, is we've had uh, a number of years of scandals that have, you know, centred around the issue of the lack of standards, um, partly because the rules aren't clear uh, and also because the rules that we do understand are clearly not fit for purpose. So take the personalities out, take the personalities out of it. Let government govern. Um, and let's actually just set some rules that are fit for purpose, that are transparent, that give people a clear indication and picture of the kind of activity that happens, who is trying to influence Parliament, why they're trying to do it, the kind of voices that are being heard um, on a regular basis and how and why decisions are made. Um, so I think, you know, in answer to the question if, if things got worse, I, I, you know, I'd rather focus on the future. I think there were some really good recommendations in all the reports that have been mentioned, um, whether it's the CSPL, Boardman, uh, some of the work that PACAC have done. They just need, the to, be enacted. They just need to be enacted, really. Someone now needs to get around the table. Um, and I would say that needs to be, you know, industry, my industry and, you know, parliamentarians and actually work out how we're going to tackle this and address this really now. So, um, I, you know, yes, trust is not something that we can just talk about eroding and, and accept it. You know, we can do some work to make things better. Um, but that work has to start quite soon. And uh, I would say if, if Sunak stood on the steps down the street saying that he was taking this stuff seriously, we now need to see some action on that. That's all we've got time for this week. But you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Fleur Anderson, John Gurlis, and Dave Penman. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>